If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the fourth chapter of the book of Judges, verses one through seven. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hands of King Haban of Canaan, who reigned in Ezor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hazroseth Giom. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Haban's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give, you into, give him into your hand. Here ends the reading of words inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The last time I preached from the book of Judges was in the late summer of 2016, just after Donald Trump had clinched his party's nomination to the presidency. And I commented from this pulpit that the book of Judges is like the current state of the Republican Party a dumpster fire of bad decisions. <laughs> Little did we know that those were the good old days. Anyway, the assessment still stands. The Book of Judges is still a dumpster fire of bad decisions, and so is the GOP. But in theory, there are plenty of lessons to be learned by paying attention to them. To begin, it is really something that Jewish rabbis left these stories in at all. Judges does not have a happy ending. The book is a downward spiral that eventually collapses in on itself. It is a series of stories characterized by a repeated cycle. Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and they are handed over to the enemy and oppressed for years. They cry out, and the Lord raises up a hero who defeats the oppressor, and Israel is faithful again for a while. The cycle ends with, 
and the land had rest. What is that like? I mean, we could use some of that. And the land had rest. But then lather, rinse, repeat. The Israelites again forget God and fall into the hands of an enemy. The time of peace gets shorter as the time of oppression grows longer. 80 years of peace followed by 18 years of oppression. Then 40 years of peace followed by 20 years of oppression. And then just six years of peace and 18 years of oppression. It keeps going like that until the end of the book, which closes with an ominous line. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Most of us try to erase our mistakes, or at the very least pretend we didn't make them. We certainly don't write them down for everyone to read, if we can help it. But the rabbis left it all in. This was in part because the Israelites needed to hear a good word. The Book of Judges is a collection of stories from the early days of Israel's history, covering roughly 1200 to 1050 BCE. These stories were told in families and clans and villages and towns, young and to old. Finally, these stories were worked into a long historical account that runs from Deuteronomy through the second book of Kings. These stories were told during the time of the Israelites' exile in Babylon, that terrible time of dislocation and separation, of being away from home and not knowing if they would ever make it back. These stories are a response to that time in exile, an answer to the question, has God forsaken and forgotten us? These stories remind the people, no, this has happened before. We will get through this. We will find our way eventually. Look at all the times that this has happened before. But also, these stories represent the hope that we will learn from our mistakes. Those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, so the saying goes. So the rabbis wrote everything down so the Israelites wouldn't forget that this was a predictable outcome. When you pick fights with your neighbor and forget about God, this is what happens. Death and destruction, chaos. There's a theory that the book of Judges was written the way it is because it was actually authored by a deeply religious woman who is satirizing men who play God. The most likely candidate is Deborah, the woman introduced in the text we read this morning. I say introduced because the lectionary only has us read seven of 55 verses of the story that tells us about the rule of Deborah. Male or female, she is the only judge who is also a prophet. As Moses sits to judge the people, she too sits and Israelites come to her for decisions. Alone among the judges before Samuel, Deborah is recorded as being sought out for judgment. Deborah's story includes quite a few other women, like Jael, who drove a tent peg through Sisera's head as he slept to end the war, a story we don't tell the kids in Sunday school. 
The number of women in the entire book of Judges forms quite a crowd. 19 women are individually noted, although only four of them have their names recorded. Asha, Deborah, Jael, and Delilah. The other women are identified either by their relational link to male kin, like Jephthah's daughter, Sisera's mother, or the Levite's concubine, or by their spatial relationship, like the women of Jabesh and the women of Shiloh. Because I proudly pastor a bunch of feminists, you already know that the names of women are often left out of the text because the texts come from eons of patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal culture. As biblical scholar Athalia Brenner notes, naming lends substance to a character. Relational and functional definitions are indeed valuable for suspending, suspending disbelief, in regard to a character's development and interaction with plot structure, but the absence of a name constitutes a coded message concerning a certain insubstantiality, an insubstantiality that might or might not be upheld by the nameless figure's actual role. In other words, women go unnamed because they are deemed not important enough even if they are driving the action or are central to the story. But this would be antithetical to the argument that a woman authored the book of Judges. Surely if a woman authored this text, she would have been intentional about naming her sisters. This is basic sisterhood code. As Madeleine Albright said, there is a special place in hell for women who do not help other women, and I'd apply this to scripture too. But the lack of names of women in the text actually could be another reason why we would argue that the book of Judges was written by a woman. There is an identifiable pattern when it comes to when and how women are named in the text, much like the identifiable pattern of the downward spiral of Israel in the book of Judges. The first women in the early chapters we encounter all have names, Asha, Deborah, and Jael. But as Israel finds itself getting deeper and deeper into the mud, the fate of women declines in lockstep. The many women characters become nameless. Women lose their independent power and become objects and victims. At first, inadvertently and willingly, but then more intentionally and unwillingly, like Samson's wife in chapters 14 and 16, who is murdered by her own clan, and the Levite's concubine in chapter 19, who is gang-raped and then cut into 12 pieces, and the women of Shiloh in chapter 21, abducted and turned into sex slaves. Yes, it's all in the Bible, and yes, it is all awful. And this might be exactly why a woman thought it should be recorded this way, to demonstrate the principle that how it goes for women is how it goes for the community. It could be that this book was written by a woman not intended to be satire about men who play God, but as a warning of what happens to society when society treats women poorly. 
And this is the point to which we desperately need to pay attention. It is not just in the ancient world that the health and well-being of women provided a barometer by which to measure the core health and values of a community. It is true in our modern context, the state of Oklahoma is Exhibit A. About our state and the status of women, Victoria Law wrote, for over 25 years, Oklahoma has led the nation in the rate at which it sends women to prison. Roughly 151 of every 100,000 Oklahoma women are behind bars, twice the national average. Conditions here often push women down the path toward prison. Oklahoma ranks among the bottom 16 states for women's mental health, meaning that Oklahoma women report experiencing poor mental health conditions, including stress, depression, and eating disorders, at a higher average than many other states. In 2015, it ranked among the bottom 10 states for women's economic security and access to health insurance and higher education. The result of all these tangled competing forces is a vicious cycle in which the women who have the least access to social and economic independence, health insurance, and mental health treatment are the most at risk for imprisonment. And, as in other parts of the country, women of color tend to suffer disproportionately. In a state where black people make up only 7.7% of the entire population, nearly 20% of the women's prison population is African American. Native American are 13% of the prison population, but Native people of all genders are only 9% of the state population. According to the National Status of Women data, Oklahoma's best grade is in the area of work and family for which it receives a C plus. Oklahoma women who work full time year round earn 80 cents on the dollar compared with similarly employed men. If current trends continue, women in Oklahoma will not see equal pay until the year 2068. If we were to borrow Deborah from Israel and move her from under her palm tree to sitting under the oil well outside our state capital, and if we were to hand her the statistics I just rattled off, she would need nothing else to know that Oklahoma is in a race to the bottom, as George Kaiser recently wrote. Based on the poor quality of life for women in Oklahoma, it would come to her as no surprise that the general statistics about Oklahoma are equally as terrible. We are always in competition for being the worst. And she might say to us, I have a story to tell you. I'm surprised you haven't heard it before, though, seeing how this is the buckle of the Bible belt and all. We have some state legislators who keep a Bible on their state house desk, but it is painfully obvious that it is mere decoration. Otherwise, they would be familiar with a prophetic warning about tending to the well-being of women in the Book of Judges. What is wrong with Oklahoma? how we treat women. Oklahoma continues its decline into chaos. 
And most of us know that Oklahoma is a microcosm of what's going on across the world. But here's some hope. In churches across the country, more and more Debras are doing the work of the gospel. This time, this year, for the first time in the history of the United Church of Christ, the percentage of active, non-retired, female ordained ministers exceeded the percentage of active, non-retired, male ordained ministers. It took us 60 years 1957 to 2017, but we finally got equal representation when it comes to who wears the robe and stole. It's true that more women are associate ministers than men, and we are more often hired by smaller churches, but sooner rather than later, I believe, we will have equal representation in big steeple churches and as senior ministers. When it comes to politics, we just elected another woman to the state senate. This will directly impact women in Oklahoma because we know that increased gender representation directly translates into stronger consideration of women in drafting law and policy. Women may not be intrinsically better at legislating, but studies show that they are often more compassionate, better at working across the aisle, and more willing to compromise qualities intricately bound in successful policymaking. More and more Oklahoma women are running for office, ready to use their gifts and skills to turn this ship around. And we are grateful. And we seem to be entering, as Spike Trotman noted, a strange new world in which men experience consequences. No, women cannot be harassed, groped, or touched without permission. Not in the 80s, not in the 90s, not in 2017, not anymore. Women who have been abused are finding their voice, and it doesn't matter how much money or power the perpetrator has. But it's not just that men are experiencing consequences. More and more men are responding to the Me Too movement with a message of, I will. I will not give a pass to other men who make crude jokes or inappropriate comments. I will not agree to speak on panels that include only men, which are called manals. <laughs> I will work for justice, gender justice. I will believe women. Yesterday, Dr. Dave Barnard, a United Methodist pastor from Birmingham, Alabama, penned an open letter from Alabama pastors about Roy Moore, who has now been accused by five women of sexual abuse. His letter is not only clear that Christianity rejoices in the truth and affirms the rights of abuse survivors to tell their stories, but that even before the recent allegations of sexual abuse, Roy Moore demonstrated that he was not fit for office and that his extremist values and actions are not consistent with traditional Christian values or good Christian character. 
In light of Roy Moore's extremist beliefs, his patterns of behavior, and the recent allegations against him, no person of faith can, in good conscience, support him or his religious nationalism. It's been less than 24 hours, and over 100 Alabama clergy have signed that letter. And this is why we are not without hope. This is why it might not be lather, rinse, repeat for us. We may yet avoid sharing that ominous last line of the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. It may be that instead of using the Bible as a weapon, we'll start using it as a mirror by which to see ourselves more clearly and correct course. And in time, we might share a different line with the book of Judges. And the land had rest. And the land had rest. God knows we need it. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Laurie Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.